invite you to turn back to that Exodus 3 passage that we read a little bit earlier. There's a quote by A.W. Tozer that I'm fond of. I've used it more than once. But it's bare, it, it's worth repeating today. And it says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most determining fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. That is an amazing quote and it's worth thinking about often. I would like to add a piece to it for our message today. I'd like to say it's not only what comes into our mind when we think about God that's so important, but also, let me say, but what comes into God's mind when he thinks about us. And uh, it's my job and duty today in this text to keep those two truths together. So let me say it clearly and plainly. What you think about God and what God thinks about you, both of those together are incredibly important, and I think they may be the most important thing about you. And I'd like to demonstrate that in our text today in the Burning Bush passage. And I want to talk about those truths that we're trying to keep together about what you think about God and what God thinks about you. And I want to use two theological terms that the passage about the burning bush uh, describes God with. One is his transcendence and the other is his eminence. And so I'm just going to have two points today. I'm going to unpack them one at a time and, and put these points into your mind and see how they work functionally in our lives. The first, the God of the burning bush is transcendent. It says that Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law. He'd been doing this for 40 years. Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. He was looking for better grounds for food and things for his sheep. And he came to Horab, the mountain of God. Now, it hadn't been called the mountain of God, but Moses, looking back, reads that into it because he knows the facts. And that's where he comes. And what Moses is going to happen, what's going to happen to Moses on the mountain is he's going to get a revelation from God. And, and the first thing that he's going to find out about God is that he is transcendent. And let me clear your mind up if you don't know what that means, also, you're not familiar with the term. It means that God is distinct from everyone and everything. He is in a class by himself. He is set apart um, both quantitatively and qualitatively. He is greater than anyone. He is infinitely above and beyond us in every way. So by using the term transcendent, I'm going to say what Moses finds out from God's own lips in this passage in verse 5. God says, Moses, do not come near to me. Don't draw near to me. So we could say God's transcendent makes him completely, utterly different apart from, away from everyone else. And because of that, we might say he is distant. In other words, he is far. He, he's not like us. And that's important for Moses, and, and listen, stay with me, and that's important for you and I today, because God knows what Moses needs the most when he is going to stand in front of Pharaoh and demand that he let his people go, and he is the superpower of the world at that time. Here's what God thinks Moses needs more than anything else, more than psychology, more than philosophy, more than military strategy, or anything else that you might think Moses is going to need. What he needs is a... Good theology. He needs to know who God is. The most important thing about Moses 
is what, not what he thinks about himself, not what he thinks about Pharaoh, and not even what he thinks about Israel. The most important thing about Moses and the most important thing about you this morning is what you think about God. So he comes to the mountain of God, and there's a revelation of the burning bush. Now, this whole story about coming to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, the only other place in the Bible that the phrase Horeb, the mountain of God, is used is 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 8, when Elijah, in a very difficult place in his life and ministry, also needed to see God. He needed a revel, and, and God knows that when he's asking uh, to you to face difficulties and problems and, and, and ministry opportunities that are way bigger than you are, you know what you need more than anything else? What Elijah needed, what Moses needed is they needed a vision, they needed a view, they needed an understanding of who God is. And so he goes to a mountain. Mountains in the Bible are places of revelation very often. Mount Sinai, where God gave the Ten Commandments. Mount Carmel, where Elijah calls down fire from heaven and reveals that God is the true God. Mount Moriah is where God, through Abraham's sacrifice, realized that he was the God of the atonement. Mount Zion, Mount Beatitudes, where Jesus told everyone about who he was and what his kingdom was like. The Mount of Olives, Mount Calvary, maybe the greatest, obvious revelation of all, where Jesus died in our place. The Mount of Ascension, where he went back. Mountains in the Bible are about God revealing something about himself to his people. You could say, for especially Moses and Elijah, that this mountain revelation of God was a turning point for them. It certainly was a turning point in redemptive history for Israel. But on a personal level, it was a turning point. We might even go so far as to say a defining moment for Moses, coming to know who the God he served really was and what he was all about. See, this morning, I don't know when you came in what you're facing. I'm not sure what you will face. But it could be this morning that this message, this service could be a turning point for you because God brought you here, not on a mountaintop, but into this auditorium this morning because he wants to tell you something about himself. He wants to reveal himself through his word to you. He wants you, in light of what you're facing, he wants you to face him. He wants you to see who he is, know who he is. And he wants you to grasp, as you leave here today, that the most important thing about you is your vision of God, your understanding of who he is. So this could be, like Moses, a mountaintop experience for you. It could change your mind about how you think about God. It did for Moses, and it started with an angel of the Lord. It says in verse 2 that the angel of the Lord came and appeared to him. In the Old Testament, we call that a theophany. It's God's presence manifested. And the angel of the Lord, almost undoubtedly every time that phrase is used, talks about God's presence. It's not an angel. The word angel actually means messenger. But it's a representation. The angel of the Lord, often a Christophany, which is a representation of the pre-incarnate Christ. But it's God coming in person. And, and, and this theophany is unlike any other theophany. It's incredibly unusual and unique, is that God appears in a burning bush, a a bush that is on fire, but yet the bush itself is not consumed, it says. God is a fiery God. 
And often his presence, especially with the people of Israel, is represented that way. All throughout their wilderness wanderings, they had the fiery pillar that guided them every step of the way. Elijah called down fire from heaven, and that meant that he was God because that was his presence. When Moses was given the commandments on Mount Sinai, the Bible says that on top of the mountain where God's presence were, there was thunder and there was lightning. And it says this, and the mountain at the top was smoking. I mean, the fire was so intense that it, it lit the mountain on fire. You see, God appears to Moses to change his whole view of him with this theophany of fire. And why? Because fire in this instance represents God's self-determination. In other words, when you have a fire, and you know this, that for the fire to continue, it needs some sort of fuel. And it can only continue to blaze where there is stuff to consume it, that it can consume. So it goes out, though, when it has nothing to burn. But this fire in the bush was different. I mean, it should have burned the bush up immediately, but it didn't. And there was nothing else around that it could consume. But yet, without any other fuel, it continues to burn. And, and that's a picture of God and who he is. God is self-determining, as I said in my prayer. He doesn't have a beginning where he started. He doesn't have an ending when he is done. He, he didn't come from anywhere, and he doesn't depend on anyone for anything. You might be able to say, when you talk about God being transcendent, that his reality is not defined by me, but my reality is defined by him. And Moses understands how amazing this visual is. So it says in verse 3 that he stepped aside from what he was doing, left the sheep, and it says, I've got to see this great sight. Now listen, he, he, here's what he wants to know. Why is the bush not consumed? How is the fire burning but not... Con he, he has to turn aside to see why it's happening. And when he gets close enough to the burning bush, out from the center of the bush, the Bible says that God speaks to him. And he says, Moses, Moses. And if you've read the scriptures, you'll know that anytime the doubling of a name is used, it's very important. And usually the name doubling is God, again, revealing something about his self or his plans to the person he's talking about. Jacob, Jacob, he says in Genesis 46, when he was trying to get Jacob to fulfill the promises of what God wanted for his ancestors. Samuel, Samuel, when he wanted to make Samuel, the, the priest in the temple, to take Eli's place. Martha, Martha, when she was so busy about doing all these things, she didn't know really what God wanted of her. And God stops to talk, to, Jesus stops and talks to her about that. And of course, maybe the most famous one, Saul, Saul, on the Damascus Road, where he stops Saul in the middle of his tracks and changes his whole view of life and everything in it because he changes his view of Jesus. You see, who is the God of the burning bush? Well, he is the God who is transcendent, a God that you cannot really come too close to, a God that we would say today in our modern vernacular that you've got to stand back a little bit. You can't get too close. You better keep your distance so much so that when God calls Moses' name, the next thing he says to him is this, Moses, here's the first thing I'm going to tell you. He doesn't break into Egypt. He doesn't break into Pharaoh. He doesn't start talking about strategy. He doesn't show him signs about, you know, you know the first thing God says to him? Take your sandals off your feet. That's first. 
Moses, I've got great things for you to do. I've got such an unbelievable, I'm going to show such power in your life. I want to use you in a way that I'm not going to use anyone else hardly in history. But you know what? Before any of that, Moses, here's what you've got to know. Here's what you have to know about me. Take your sandals off your feet. In the ancient Near East, when you went into somebody's house, out of a sign of respect and humility, you take your sandals off. You, you reverence them and their presence and being with them in their house. Priests in the Old Testament, it can't be proven, but most theories think that the priest in the tabernacle and in the temple went barefoot. And the reason was because they were on holy ground. And when you were, you were serving God and ministering to him and making sacrifices, you were on holy ground. Even to this day, Muslims take their sandals or shoes off when they, before they enter a mosque. Why? Because they think that that's holy ground. That was common practice in the ancient Middle East. And God says, Moses, first thing, I'm transcendent. Take your sandals off your feet. And then he tells him why. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the first time the Bible uses the word holy is in this verse. In other words, God's going to say, hey, Moses, if I'm going to have a relationship with you and I'm going to have an ongoing relationship with Israel, you know what the basis of that relationship is? My transcendence, my holiness, me being different than anything or anyone you ever have known. I am set apart, God says. I'm distinct. I'm in a class by myself. There's no one like me. So let me ask you personally, because there's a lot of people today, and unfortunately even at times God's people, who they think of God as just maybe a bigger, greater, stronger version of themselves. Can I tell you this morning that there is a big difference between sandals on and sandals off theology? By that I mean this. Let me compare it for you. Sandals on theology where you come into God's presence, but he's not really, you know, he's holy, but, you know. So it, it usually results in some sort of casual worship where I come to church and my worship really is Sunday morning, but my worship of God doesn't take place all during the week. It's not part of my daily life. It's not how I view, how I view my wife and my marriage and my family and my job and my money and my time and my priorities and my morals and my values See, it's so casual that I kind of just do it, get a little excited on Sunday morning, kind of a pep talk from the pastor. Sandals on theology views God that way, that I kind of use him, the genie in the bottle comes out when I rub the lamp, so to speak, because I need him to do something in my life. But otherwise, I don't want him dictating to me. I don't want him controlling my life. But sandals off theology is completely different. It views worship as something I'm completely committed to. It's what I am 24-7, 365, and impacts and influences and, uh, and changes my life in every area, small and great. Sandals on theology is about God making much of me. Sandals off theology is me making much of God. See, sandals on theology is me being a consumer. I come to church, I'm involved at Faith Baptist, you know what? So I can get things. Give me this, do this for me, bend it around me. It's my priorities, my purpose, my agenda. Whereas sandals off theology, I'm not a consumer, I'm a contributor. I don't come to church just to get. 
I come to church to give. I come looking to serve other people. It's not about my rights. It's about my responsibilities. It's a completely different emphasis. Sandals on theology is I fit God into my story. Sandals off theology is God fits me into his story. Sandals on, all about my happiness. Sandals off, all about God's holiness. One is me-centered, one is God-centered. One is all about, hey, is the church relevant? The other one is about, is the church reverent? They are completely opposed to one another. And God wants Moses to say, that, hey, you're going to draw near to me? You're going to come close to me? Uzzah learned when he touched the ark, when he tried to steady it, that you can't come to God on your terms. Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire to God, and he consumed them completely. Ananias and Sapphira thought they could give offerings to God and lie about it a little bit to people, and they were struck dead. See, you see, what God wants Moses to understand and what he wants you and I to understand, that he is not a God to be trifled with. He is not a casual God. He is a holy God, unlike any other God. And if you're going to have a relationship with him, it is first and foremost based on his transcendence, about who he is, how different he is from us. God knew, God knew that for Moses to stand before Pharaoh with his sandals on, he had to first stand before God with his sandals off. Can I say it plainly to you? You cannot stand on unholy ground if you have not first stood on holy ground. There is no power before men if there is no power before God. And that's why our young people, you know why we struggle at times and our young people go to the public schools or public universities and they end up at many times uh, forfeiting and exchanging their morality, their view of God and their even belief in God anymore. Why do they? Because they haven't been in his presence, because they don't take the transcendence of God. He becomes just like them, just another philosophy, just another person in history. See, if you're going to stand at work for God, you must every morning before you go to work stand before God. You must take your shoes off before you put them on to go to work. If you're going to stand before your friends and not compromise and give in to be like them and put them in their opinions above God's, you're going to have to have God as your friend and take your sandals off because he's not like a friend to any other friend. He's a holy friend. I don't think it's far-fetched to say this. Sandals off must always precede sandals on when it comes to God and our relationship to him. So the first thing that God wants Moses to understand that defines him, the first thing that he wants you and I to understand that defines us is that the God of the burning bush is transcendent. But let me flip over the coin, and it's going to be hard because they seemingly and somewhat are the complete opposite polar extremes from one another. The second point is the God of the burning bush, not only is he transcendent, but he is imminent. And imminent is the opposite of transcendent. Transcendent means beyond your comprehension, beyond, above you, different than you, way far from you, so out there from you. Imminent means that God is up close, that God is near you, he is personal to you. Chapter 3 says... In verse 4, Moses, Moses, he says, here I am. Now notice, verse 5 says, and there's two parts to it, and this is why I'm breaking it down. Verse 5 says, then he says, now that I have your attention, don't come near, take your sandals off your feet, the place which you are standing is holy. That, he's, that's the first thing he says to Moses. Moses, I'm transcendent. See that? But notice the Bible says 
in verse 6, and he said. So he says two things to him. In order, here's what you need to get about me, Moses. Here's what I want you to think about me, because what you think about me matters most. Here's what I want you to think. I am transcendent, right? But the second thing is I want you, Moses, to understand what I think about you, because I'm imminent. And he said, second thing, it says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's not just a history lesson that God's pointing to. Here's what God is saying. I am transcendent and I am imminent. I am far and distant from you, but at the same time, I am near to you. Christianity is the only religion in the world that connects both God's transcendence and his imminence. Pantheism says God is in everything, but it denies his transcendence. God is in everything, but he's not different than anything. He's not above anything. He's just in everything. On the other hand, deism, most of our founding fathers, or a lot of them, believed in deism. It denies God's imminence. It says God is above everything. He created everything, but he doesn't bother himself to be involved in the world or, or, or people's lives. He's kind of set everything in motion and then just stepped back and let it go. Both of those theologies are in error. The God of the burning bush is both transcendent and imminent. Let me put it in practical terms. The God of the burning bush is, he is distant, but he's not detached. He is not like us, but he is with us. When God says to Moses, I am the God, notice what he says, please don't miss it. I am the God of your Father, do you hear what he says? It's personal. I'm the God of your father. You're in the story that I'm writing. You're the next person in line, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. See, I know them by name. I knew their lives. I knew everything about them. And I know you personally. Yes, yes, I'm transcendent. I'm way out there. I'm above you. You can't comprehend me. But listen, I have come down into your life today. I wrote in my notes, and amazingly, that God would say, I have attached my name to your names. See what he says? I am the God of Abraham. God transcendent, Abraham imminent. See, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not so distant that he doesn't know your name. God is not so detached that he doesn't understand what you're going through. And by God attaching his name to your name and being personal in your life doesn't mean in any way, shape, or form that you can control him. But what it means is that you can have a relationship with him. All the gods of the foreign nations around Israel, these gods, they use power and, and use the people that they supposedly they, that worship them to get what they wanted. But there was no god in antiquity that had a God that had power and might and wisdom that was so great and also had a personal relationship with the people that worshipped him. It was unheard of. That's your God in mind. Mine. God is not aloof. He's not uncompassionate. Moses might have thought, Israel might have thought, that by this time, 400 years in Egyptian slavery, maybe that transcendent God had forgotten them. And perhaps worse, maybe he had forsaken them. And maybe that's how, you ever feel that way? Be honest. Do you ever think that you're going through problems and you're going through situations and 
and, and you don't seem to get an answer, and you pray to God, and things don't seem to change, and time passes, and time passes, and time passes, and nothing ever really gets better. And you begin to think that maybe God is so transcendent, he's out there, God got a million things to do, I know it has this power, but does he really know about, does he really care about me? See, if we only believe God is transcendent and not imminent, we might think that he, does, he doesn't know or understand what I'm going through. He doesn't really care about me. But if we believe that he is imminent and, does, and he's not transcendent, we might think that he knows, but he doesn't care. And maybe he can't really do anything to change our circumstances, our situations. But look at verses 7, 8, and 9. Look at these little phrases. I have surely seen. You see that? I've seen it, the affliction of my people. Then he goes on to say, I have, no, no, it says, my eyes, I see, my ears, I heard their cry. Listen to this. I know their sufferings. He goes on to say that God knows what is going on, where it's going on, and why it's going on. I know what you're suffering, I know you have taskmasters, I know you're in Egypt. God knows all the details, the ins and the outs of everything going on in your life. God is not detached. He is not just distant. He is not just a transcendent way out there, God somewhere. Can I tell you, he knows where you live, who your boss is, the struggles you face in your marriage. He knows how your kids behave. He knows the inner turmoil, the emotional anxiety that you face, the depression that you fight. He knows it. He knows all of it in your life. But he doesn't just know it and have these sympathetic feelings. Oh, he's major, majorly more than that. Notice verses 8 and 9. I have come down. You hear that? I'm in heaven, transcendent on the throne, but I have come down to enough to see you and hear you and understand you. Listen, and I'm going to act on it. The, behold, now the cry of the people of Israel have come to me. I have seen, I didn't send angels. I'm not having reports from somebody else. I came down. I came down to see where you are and what's going on. I, I, I hear the moans. I see the tears. I understand the pain. And when you're by yourself and no one else is there, he goes, I get it. I see it. I understand. So God knows, he sees, he hears, he cares. Listen to this. And he acts. I have come down to deliver you. Moses, I want you to think this way about me because what you think about me matters most. But I want you to know, please listen, what you think about me matters, but what I think about you matters too. You might say, Pastor Walker, that's really great. God is transcendent and he's imminent and he really cares about his people together. He cares about Christians. He cares about the church, but I got a question, a little more narrow in its scope. Does he actually care about me personally? I mean, is this transcendent God that's so big and so great, and yet eminent God who's up close, but can he be up close to me? Because I'm reading this text, and Moses, he's got questions. Um, I'm not sure I'm right for the job. I don't think I can do what you're asking me to do. And, and we might even say Moses has issues because he starts debating God to the point where at the end of this text, God gets pretty angry with him for doing it. 
But did you see in the text that notice when Moses says to God in verse 11, who am I? God says in his response back to Moses in verse 14, you know what the answer to your question, who am I, is? The answer is, who I am. Did you get that? Your questions of who I am I, God's answers are who I am. Moses says, notice he, he has a list of them. I am not. I am not eloquent. We could add, Moses would say, I'm not eloquent. I'm not smart. I'm not successful. God says, I didn't choose you because of those things. I have enough of all those things for both of us. God doesn't really want the guy or the girl who says, I know why God picked me because I'm pretty awesome. He's not looking for people like that. He wants people who are broken, who feel insufficient, empty vessels because God works through them and he wants them to lean on him and trust him and depend on him. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, not many mighty, not many eloquent, not many rich or powerful or mighty. He chooses the weak things of this world. He chooses the things that are despised, he says, because God's glory is what he's after, his own glory. And he must work through those kinds of people in order to get it. One author, J.D. Greer, said this, Feeling inadequate is a prerequisite to being used by God. We live in a culture that is constantly in a self-esteem culture trying to say to you that what you really need is to think better of yourself, be more positive, think that you're all of this, and brag about yourself, talk about yourself, put pictures of yourself everywhere, because you need to think that you can do all these things. God says, in the reverse of that, that I am the God of very unpromising material. You may not be a lot of things, but he says, I am. My amness covers your notness, one author said. But God, I'm not very good. I am. God, I'm not very skilled. I know. I am. God, I'm not sure and I'm not confident as a steady person. I know I am. I'm not able to live a victorious Christian life. I know, but I can and I can do that through you. Moses has to learn this, that when you know God is transcendent and when you know he's imminent, it's not about who you are, it's about who I am. See, this morning you bring to this place and I bring to this place all kinds of deficiencies, don't we? We bring our worries, we bring our insecurities, we bring our feelings of inadequacy. I don't know if I can be this guy at work they want me to be. I don't know if I can be the wife and I don't, I don't, or the husband. I don't know if I can be a father. But I don't know if I'm the right kind of parent. You're so weak, you and I, that we can't even guarantee that we'll be around tomorrow. So small. So small. James says that we're a wisp of smoke, James 4. It says that we're just a mowed gray blade of grass, chapter 5. What he's saying, it's not very flattering, is this, the smallest change of wind or temperature could be the end of you. In the scope of the universe, here's what God says. You're so small and significant and pitiful that you don't even amount to a grain of sand on the ocean floor. I know at this point you're saying, well, Pastor Walker, I'm so glad I came here now because I'm so thankful to know that I'm nothing and virtually small. Can I tell you this? I'm not trying to get you to feel that you're small. I'm trying to tell you that you are small, that you are small, and it's a good thing. 
It's a good thing. I'm not trying to tell you things that you're, I'm trying to tell you what God is. Because it's not about who you are, small. It's about who he is, big. Pastor Walker, I'm, I'm not. And you could have, can you fill in the blank? I am not. And you have all these things behind that phrase. But you need to know God says that I am. Who could possibly be smart enough to figure all this out? God says, I am. How am I supposed to know which way to go in my life? I am. Who can I trust? I am. I'm not sure who really is on my team, on my side in life. God says, I am. Nobody listens to me. I am. My marriage is crashing. I I don't know where to turn. God says, I am. I always hope for a marriage and kids and a family, but it seems like that time has passed by me. I'm 50 years old. I feel like I need to start over again. God says, I am. Everybody thinks I can't do it. I am. What if I fail again? I am. I'm not sure I believe anymore. I am. I've given all I can, and I get nothing in return from most people. I am. I'm pouring into everybody, but nobody's pouring into me. I am. I am. I can't hold on. I am. I'm tired. I am. I quit. I am. In the Gospel of John, we repeatedly see Jesus taking the name, I am who I am, in verse 14 of Exodus 3, and applying it directly to your weaknesses and mine. In John's gospel, to those who feel alone in the darkness, he says, I am the light of the world. To those who are thirsty and cannot get satisfied, I am the living water. To those who feel lost and don't know how to live their lives, I am the way. To those who are confused and don't understand who God is or what he's like, he says, I am the truth. To those under the curse of death, Jesus says, I am the life. To those who feel insufficient and need protection and don't know where to go, he says, I'm the good shepherd. To those who need a fresh start, I am the door. To those who are crushed by guilt and sin, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Can I close with this? Whatever you are not, whatever you need, Whatever you did not get from your parents or from your teachers, whatever you're not getting from someone else, God says, I am. With the pharaohs in our lives, when they say to us, who do you think you are? You can say, I don't think I'm anything. But what I do know is the great I am. And when haters in our hearts whisper, you're not, in a long list of Descriptions follow. You can shout back, you're right. I'm not any of those things, but he is, and I know him. See, it matters what you think about God, and it matters what God thinks about you. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for those who are in this place today who need to know the God of the burning bush, that they need an adjustment, in fact, maybe a radical change in their theology. You are not just an imminent God that is here to serve our purposes and to meet our wants and desires. You are a transcendent God, way above and different and in one sense far from us, but yet at the same time, simultaneously, you are an imminent God, a God that is near, and you understand what everyone in this room today is going through. 
You see, you hear, you know, you care, you act. Father, help us like Moses to not only know the right thoughts about you, but know that you have thoughts about us, thoughts for our good and for your glory. Accomplish those purposes in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. The great I am. Amen.